helping people cope with and overcome life's challenges. This is Life Transformations with Michael Hart, Canadian Certified Counselor and Award-Winning Psychotherapist. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Life Transformation Show. In today's show, Michael Hart of Elim Counseling Services will be speaking on the topic spiritual wounds of sexual abuse and rape. And we'll be using the biblical text from 2 Samuel 13, The Rape of Tamar. You can find out more about our not-for-profit organization or make a donation to our ministry by going to elimcounselingministry.com. Elim is spelled E-L-I-M, counseling with two L's, ministry.com, or by calling 1-877-544-3546. Let's go right into today's show. In today's show, I will be using a narrative from 2 Samuel chapter 13 to speak on the topic, Spiritual Wounds of Sexual Abuse and Rape. And I think this is a very appropriate passage for speaking about rape and abuse because it speaks of the rape of a young woman by the name of Tamar. I also think it's a very important topic for us to be doing because, unfortunately, rape and sexual abuse is very common in our society. Statistics from Statistics Canada show that one in four North American women experience rape. 80% of the assailants are friends and family, and 60% of the victims of rape and sexual abuse are under age 17. The narrative from 2 Samuel 13 is one of the most gripping passages in the entire Bible. The chapter goes into great detail in telling us how Tamar came to be raped by her half-brother Amnon and how she reacted immediately after the ordeal. We won't be reading the passage, but I suggest that if you have your Bibles that you turn to it or if you have your, your Bible app on your phone that you turn to it because we are going to be referencing several verses from the passage as we go through this podcast today. We see three dramatic shifts in the narrative, which makes the story vivid and compelling. The first shift is the shift of Amnon's love turning to hate after he had committed the horrific act of raping his half-sister, Tamar. Why was he in such a hurry to send her away after raping her? Why did he hate her with such intense hatred after committing the act? From a psychological perspective, this makes sense because her tears and sadness would have been, would have been vivid reminders of the evil act he had committed. This is quite common, unfortunately, Sexual abuse victims are often avoided, shunned, or despised by family members who sexually abuse and rape them. The second shift we see in the narrative is the shift of how Amnon addressed Tamar. Early in the narrative, he refers to her as my sister Tamar. That's in verse 7. 
But notice that after he had raped her, he refers to her as this woman. Verse 17. Perhaps the term this woman is an attempt to depersonalize Tamar, to make the act he had done to her more palatable to his conscience. Or maybe it is the author's way of cleverly telling us that something has shifted in the psychological state of Tamar, that she has lost her innocence. She is no longer a girl. She is suddenly a woman. She is now this woman. Or perhaps this depersonalization of Tamar into this woman can be looked at as a way of saying she is representative of every woman who has endured sexual abuse and rape. Perhaps you're listening to this show today and you are this woman. You're included in that term, this woman. This is a very powerful term. If we look at this term in the same way that we look at the term today, the Me Too movement, I think the term has the same kind of power. It is very inclusive of all the women who have unfortunately suffered the ordeal of being sexual, sexually abused or raped. So you are listening today and you can identify with the Me Too movement. You can probably identify with Tamar and the This Woman movement because Tamar suffered an ordeal that is very common among women who have been sexually abused and raped. But we see also a third shift in the narrative. There is this dynamic change in the story, and it has to do with the state of the ornament robe that Tamar was wearing when she came to the house where Amnon lived. Amnar had invited Tamnon to come in and to prepare a meal for him. And while she was preparing that meal, he called her to his bedside and he raped her. But we see that third shift in what happened after the, the rape. We are told that the robe is the kind that virgin daughters of the king wore. That's in verse 18. This must have been strikingly beautiful and unique. But soon after, we have been made aware of this beautiful dress. We are told that she tore the dress in agony and that she sprinkled ashes on her head. The sprinkling of ashes being an act of mourning. The dress that celebrated her virginity was now ripped and, and soiled with ashes. Apart from depicting her grief, it could also be the author's way of telling us that something precious was taken from Tamar when she was raped. A way of saying she would never be viewed the same way after that day. And hence we hear her pleas to Amnon before he raped her, saying, Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where 
could I get rid of my disgrace? That's in verse 12 and 13. This statement speaks to the shame that many victims of sexual abuse and rape wrestle with long after the incident. One of the effects of sexual abuse and rape that is often overlooked is the negative effects these events have on the victim's spirituality. As someone who worked predominantly with people of faith for many years, I have seen hundreds of victims who are struggling in their faith because of past sexual abuse and rape. In this show, I will identify five of the common spiritual wounds that victims of rape and sexual abuse suffer from. Wounds that limit their spiritual life. This show will reveal some of the causes why people struggle in their faith walk and inform members of the clergy and church leaders of deeper underlying issues that they need to be sensitive to in caring for these members of their congregation. This podcast will also be helpful to victims as it will give insights into why they struggle with certain aspects of faith and motivate them to deal with the root causes. So the first point I want to speak to today, the first spiritual wound, is the wound that makes victims incapable of trusting God, the inability to trust God. And this makes sense because these victims who have been sexually abused were abused by people they trusted. The statistics that I referred to earlier says that 80% of the assailants are family members and friends. So in a very large part, people who are sexually abused are abused and raped by people that they know people they trusted. In some case, it's a father. In other cases, might be the beloved uncle, or it might be that bigger brother that they once looked up to. But whatever the relationship is, there is a violation of trust. And so victims of sexual abuse develop this inability to trust and it affects their inability to it affects their ability to trust God. And so one of the things that we know that when people feel that their lives are out of control and they can't trust people around them, they develop false way of trying to find control of their lives. So this inability to trust can reflect in the victims coming up with rituals to try to feel safe in their environment. And many of these rituals are forms of OCD. So it could, it could be feeling, I feel safe if I arrange things in my, in my room in a certain way. And so young victims of sexual abuse who develop 
who develop OCD often have certain rituals that they do as a way of trying to feel safe in their environment. In one study that was done and published in the Israeli Journal of Psychiatry, they found that 53.3% of sexual abuse victims suffered from OCDs. So these are victims who have developed rituals as a way of trying to feel safe and to deal with the anxiety that resulted from the sexual abuse or the rape that they have they have uh, suffered. And so in adult life, these children find it very difficult to trust God and to trust others. So they may isolate themselves in church congregations. They might not develop healthy relationships that can help them to become uh, to become close to people and to be able to develop some of those social social ties that will help them to heal because they just cannot trust. And they cannot trust God as well, so they keep God at a distance. And, and so it's not uncommon for people who have been sexual abused or raped in their childhood to say, I just don't believe that those promises are for me. I know God can heal others. I know that he will provide for others, but I just cannot trust him to do the same for me. And so this comes from their trust being violated in in childhood. And so for people who are counseling victims of sexual abuse and rape, it's important to understand the source of that inability to trust. There's a second spiritual wound that victims of sexual abuse and rape carry is this inability to feel. When young children are being victimized and they're powerless to do anything about their circumstances. One of the things that they do as a result, as a, as a way of trying to cope, is to shut down their emotions. They become numb to what is going on around them. And so after a while, they develop this inability to feel and so once they become believers, they cannot experience the joy of God. The psalmist in Psalm 16 verse 11 says, In your presence, that's in God's presence, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So when the sexual abuse victims do not engage in worship in a way that allows it to uplift them, they're not just resisting the what's going on in the church. They're not just being stoic. They're actually incapable because of what they have experienced in childhood to participate in a way that can make them feel joy. The shutting down of the negative emotions have also led to a shutting down of their ability to feel the positive emotions 
as well. So they might feel that they are not loved by God. They cannot feel the love of God. They cannot have a sense of being in the presence of God. So whereof others who have not been sexual abused can have this sense of God's awesomeness and the the, the, the joy of God's presence. People who are sexually abused or raped often finds it very difficult to feel when they're in his presence. And the third the third spiritual wound is a sense of shame, a sense of shame. And so this comes from the fact that many victims of childhood sexual abuse blame themselves when they were children. And so they they develop this feeling that they are somehow responsible for what was done to them. I must have been a bad child for my father to select me out of all my sisters. Or I must have been a bad child for my uncle or my brother to do that to me. And so they grow up with this sense of shame. And this sense of shame also limits their their spiritual life because they are never really able to break free from this sense that they are somehow less than others. They are somehow damaged. And many of these these victims, they are very talented. They have tremendous talents that they have developed over the years and maybe as a way of coping during their childhood. But they just cannot bring themselves to a point where they can allow God to take that talent and use it because they feel this sense of shame. You know, if God is calling them to do something with their talent, they will often feel, that must not be the voice of God. That could not be me that God is calling to do that particular task or that particular work or to perform with that particular talent because they carry this sense of unworthiness and in this and this sense of shame. And there's a big difference between shame and guilt because guilt say that I have done something wrong and I can be forgiven. Shame say I am something bad. I am damaged. I am somehow defective. And in the story of Tamar, the ripping of her clothes and the the sprinkling of dust on her head shows that sense of shame that she somehow feels that her state has changed. And in, in her plea to her brother where she said, where could I get rid of my disgrace? In other words, she is feeling that once this thing is done to her, she is stuck and does not have a way to get rid of the shame that she is carrying. And this shame limits many victims spiritually. Michael will be right back. You have been listening to the Life Transformation Show, where award-winning psychotherapist Michael Hart of Elim Counseling Services has been speaking on the topic spiritual wounds of sexual abuse and rape. You can find out more about us at elimcounselingministry.com, where you can also make a donation to this Christ-centered ministry. Back to Michael. 
and the fourth spiritual wound of sexual abuse and rape is that there are certain triggering spiritual terms or disciplines. So, for example, the term God the Father to a person who have been sexually abused by a father is very triggering. They cannot appropriate that term as a term that means safety, as a term that means reliance and trust. They see this term as a term of danger. And so many of the passages of the Bible that talks about God the Father do not bring peace to these victims in the same way it does to the rest of us. And so for those of us who are shepherding victims of sexual abuse and rape, we have to uh, become aware of how we speak to them about God. And other terms can be used for God other than God the Father. And in any case, if you're going to be using that term to someone who have been sexually abused and it's triggering that person, you have to be very sensitive and it might take time and and patience before they can learn to appropriate that term in a way that's positive. And so being sensitive means that you use other term about God. Being sensitive means that for new believers, you will need to explain how God the Father is different than earthly fathers, because this is not something that is natural for persons who have been betrayed, sexually abused, and raped by their earthly father. Another triggering term could be the term time alone with God. You know, many of us talk about spending time alone with God, and that's the discipline of prayer and and meditation, where we encourage uh, members of our congregation to spend time in prayer. And it's not surprising that many people do not have a prayer life. Many people who are victims of sexual abuse do not have a prayer life, because time alone with God is triggering. Spending time talking to God the Father alone is triggering. And so for these people, it is necessary to have them deal with the underlying pain. And it's no wonder that some leaders of the church, they are frustrated because people will have time to do everything else. They can spend hours watching their favorite shows on TV, but then they will say, I have no time for prayer. It's not that they have no time for prayer. It's that Time alone, spending time in quiet is very triggering for these people who have been sexually abused. And so help is needed to desensitize, desensitize those terms and to help them to begin to see it in a positive light. And as, as believers and leaders of the church, we should be aware that we do not have to get hung up in reference to God in, cert, in certain ways, because these terms are just terms that are used to describe God. But God is beyond description. None of these terms capture all of 
who God is. So God can be referred to in multiple ways, and he has been referred to in multiple ways throughout scriptures. He is referred to as leader. He is referred to as king. He is referred to as Lord. And so these other terms can be more appropriate than speaking of God the Father initially to someone who has not yet dealt with the betrayal and abuse by a father. And the fifth and final point is that the the fifth and final spiritual wound is the sense of danger. So this sense of danger makes it impossible or very hard for those who have been raped and sexually abused to find peace in the presence of God. The Bible talks about the peace of God that Pass it understanding. And many of us know what it is to be in this state, this state of peace despite of the turmoil around us. But for people who have been sexually abused, their body and their mind is in a perpetual state of fight or flight. And the best way to explain this is that the when there when there is a distress signal that signal uh, enters the brain in this part of the brain called the amygdala. And that part of the brain serves as a, sends a distress signal, I should say, to the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus is like the command center of the brain that says, okay, what do I do with this incoming message? And this mess, this, this command center then relays the information to the rest of to the, the rest of the body through two through two systems. And one is the sympathetic nervous system, which if you think about it in terms of a car, it's like the gas pedal of the car. And the sympathetic nervous system is that part that tells you that either you have to to, to, to fight or whether or not you you run. And so that's the gas. But then there's this other part of the brain called the parasympathetic nervous system, which is like the, the brake. And this is the, the system that gives us rest and calm and we're able to, to relax and be at peace. But for people who have been sexually abused or molested, it's as if they, they, the gas pedal is always down. The sympathetic nervous system is always in fight or flight mode. And so when that that gas pedal is always pressed, that sympathetic nervous system is always engaged, then the adrenaline gland produces the stress hormone cortisol, which makes them all mis- which makes victims always on high alert and so this robs them of being of experiencing the peace of god you know proverbs 28:1 says the wicked flees when no one pursues and i'm not calling these victims wicked what i'm trying to illustrate here is that for people who have done wrong sometimes their guilty conscience keeps their their sympathetic nervous system engaged and there's they're always in this fight or flight mode because they think someone is going to take revenge against them the same thing happens with sexual abuse victims and people who have been sexually uh people who have been raped they're in this perpetual state compared Perpetual, perpetual state of fight or flight. Compare this to Psalm 23, where the psalmist says, David says, God prepares a table 
in the presence of his enemies. And this is a way of saying that even when there is trouble around, I am calm. And that table represents a place where he can eat and digest food. And that is actually one of the 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 responsibilities of the parasympathetic system is that it gives us the ability to be calm and to digest food and to relax. And so there you have it, the five spiritual wounds of sexual abuse and rape. If you have missed the first part of the show, I encourage you to go and listen to it on our YouTube channel at elimcounselingministry.com. There's so much more I'd love to say, but we are quickly out of time for today. So I encourage you to to go to our YouTube channel and you can listen to this show along with over 200 other shows that are published there. We also want to remind you that we are a not-for-profit organization that counts on your support. You can support us through our website at elimcounselingministry.com E-L-I-M counseling with two L's ministry.com. You can also donate through our Patreon page at patreon.com slash elim for as little as $5 monthly. I want to Thank you so much for tuning in for, to this episode of the Life Transformation Show and pray that God would bless you in all your relationships and keep you sound in mind and pure in heart.